Working Class Audio is brought to you by Universal Audio, Audio Technica, Lauten Audio, Focal Monitors, and Gearsluts.com. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 175. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 175 you're listening to. Can you believe that? I can't believe that. We're 25 episodes away from 200. Amazing. Anyways, enough of that. <laughs> let's, let's get on with the show, man. Today, my guest is Mr. Adam Munoz. Adam is, uh, to those of us in the Bay Area, um, he's, a, he's a well-known, very uh, tip-top, cream of the crop, we'll say. Uh, engineers in the Bay Area, really knows his shit backwards and forwards. He uh, currently is a staff engineer over at Fantasy Studios, but prior to that, he worked at Different Fur. Uh, he worked at uh, Brilliant Studios. He's worked with a lot of different people. Um, let me name a few names. He's worked with Herbie Hancock, Dave Matthews, Marcus Miller, uh, Faith No More, Mr. Bungle, Chris Isaac, Bonnie Raitt, The Cranberries, Paula Cole, uh, he has a longtime relationship with Bill Frizzell and producer Lee Townsend. And in 2015 and 2016, they had a Grammy Award nomination for Best Contemporary Instrumental Album. He's been fortunate to have worked alongside many, many super talented producers and engineers, including Andy Wallace, Matt Wallace, Howard Johnston, Billy Anderson, uh, Frank Blue, Carl Durfler, Mark Sinisak, John Cunaberti. There's a few names there who uh, people have been on the show. Yeah. And the list goes on and on and on. His background is pretty, pretty intense. And he's been definitely brought up under some great leadership. Uh, speaking of Howard Johnston, we got to get Howard on the show. Those of you outside the Bay Area, Bay Area who don't know Howard, you got to, we got to talk to him. I'll figure it out. Anyways, super excited. Adam Munoz is here. I met him over at the Saul Zantz Film Center which is actually, you know, that's actually part of the the compound that Fantasy Studios is in. So uh, we got together in person rather than doing it over the internet. It, it worked out best to get in, together in person and have a cup of coffee. So yeah, Adam Munoz coming up here on the Working Class Audio podcast. Got to give a shout out to, to my new friend, Nate Williams. Nate uh, came to the Bay Area to play a show. He plays guitar and keyboards and sings in, in the band Jamiroquai who, you know, many of you will know, of course, they've been around for about 18 years and he's been in the band about 18 months. Anyhow, he, uh, he reached out and said, Hey, I'm coming to town. Let's have coffee, come to the show. Uh, so I did, had a great time, sold out show, killer seats, total VIP treatment. So, uh, just want to give a shout out to, to Nate and say, thanks, Nate. That was great. Had a great time. The band sounded incredible. I'll be honest with you. I've never really paid attention to Jamiroquai. You know, there are bands that you hate, bands that you love, and then bands that you just don't pay attention to. That is the case for me, for Jamiroquai. And I, I got to say, as much of a rock and roll, heavy rock kind of person that I am, I really enjoyed it a hell of a lot. And I came back and woke up the next morning and then put on some Jamiroquai music and uh, was playing it and talking about it with the kids. And it's really good, really good players, really amazing. So thanks again to Nate. And uh, if you're ever in the Bay Area and you listen to the show and you want to have coffee, give me a shout. Matt at workingclassaudio.com. Happy to meet up for coffee if you're buying, of course. and uh, Or I'll buy. Yeah, if you're coming from out of town, shit, I'll buy. Anyhow, yeah, come and, uh, come and join me for coffee here in the Bay Area. Um, as I mentioned in the past few episodes, I'm going to be in Europe this summer and going to be in London, going to be in um, Amsterdam, going to be in Paris. And a couple stops in between, but those are the primary cities. So if you got somebody you think I should interview, put it on the uh, guest suggestion form, which is on the Working Class Audio site. Check that out. Yeah, put down everything you know about the person. If you know them and you can make an introduction, that's even better. Always easier when it's coming from somebody, you know, as a suggestion. Anyhow, yeah, do that. Guest suggestion form, Working Class Audio. Uh, what else? What else? What else? While you're at it, you know, while I'm trying to think of what else is going on, make sure you head on over to gearsluts.com. Check out the subform audio life that we sponsor here. As I always tell you, go check out a universal audio site. Always great stuff happening over there. Great plugins. God, I love their plugins. I really do. Full disclosure though, I have been doing some QA work for them. So I'm a little biased, I have to say, but nonetheless, 
go check it out. Uaudio.com. Go see some of the great videos over there. Um, Joel Hamilton's got a great video on. There's another guy we got to get on. Joel Hamilton. Joel, if you're listening to this, I'm going to reach out to you. We're going to get you on the show because uh, you're, you're doing great work. What else is going on? I'm. Oh, I got to tell you, I'm totally geeking out. Still hangover from uh, Jack and Dino's interview and my conversation with him about the whole Linux thing. You know, I'm going on this Linux tirade. I'm pulling out all these old Macs and PCs and putting Linux on them and giving them away to friends. And anyways, I'm sitting here installing a, a version of Linux on this old MacBook right here. And uh, man, it really brings new life to uh, some of these old systems. So anyways, still exploring that whole thing. Linux, check it out. And um, which I'm, I'm told that a great DAW for Linux is the, uh, the, the mix bus, the Harrison stuff. Yeah. I got to check that out. Anyhow, I'm kind of rambling here and, uh, I'd really like to have you hear this interview. So let's get to it. Let's have a listen to my interview with Adam Munoz here on the working class audio podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Adam. Hi, man. Thanks for having me on. We're actually in the Salzance Film Center behind the Avid S6. Uh, is this an S6? This is an X S6, yes. Okay. Uh, yeah. I believe uh, the Film Center put it in here about a year and a half ago now. Uh, the amount of work they did in this room was amazing. It's, it sounds amazing in here. Yeah. So um, for the listener, if you can imagine it, it's like a small movie theater. It is a movie theater. There's a screen in front of us. There's, as I said, there's a Avid S6 console for mixing films in here. There's very plush seats around us. There's a 71 Myers sound system in here. It's um, it's beautiful and it's dead quiet. It is pretty quiet. Yeah, I mean, it's imagine this is it. This is it when you're in here mixing film. So um, every time I sip my coffee, people <laughs> you will are hear everything hear that. in this room. Yeah, but it's beautiful. And they still have screenings in here. I believe it seats about thirty-five comfortably. Yeah, it's a, it's a great room to mix in. I personally don't do much film mixing, so I haven't really been up here. But um, Alberto Hernandez downstairs, he's, he's up here a lot. Jim Lebrecht has been up here a lot. Dan Elmstead. So it's it's getting to be a little bit busier of a room than it started out as. And it's on the sixth floor of the Salzians. Oh, uh, the third actually. Oh, the third. Yeah, yeah sorry, that guy was going six. We went. Oh, third. he was going to yeah. six. That's right. Sorry, <laughs> yeah, I wasn't paying attention. Yeah, guy got in the elevator. He went to six. He went to we six. went to three. Right. Exactly. This this building that we're in is pretty classic building. We just went and picked up our, our cups of coffee downstairs on the first floor in Fantasy Studios, right. where you currently work. Correct. A lot of great records have been made there. Yeah, a lot of history. Yeah, the building is, um, I believe they started building it in 69, 70. It was opened by 71 for sure. And then they built this building that we're in after, I believe, 80. So this this tall seven-story building was built after uh, Cuckoo's Nest. One flew over the Cuckoo's Nest was came out and became successful and they built this building for huh. them after that. So it's kind of the joke is the fantasy downstairs is the house that Credence built <laughs> and <laughs> and this building is the house that Cuckoo built. So interesting. Um, yeah. So it's a separate building? They are separate, yeah. The first the studios A, B, and C were all built in that, that sixty nine period. C was built for Credence. And then Saul Zantz was a film producer and he produced one floor of the Cuckoo's Nest. And when that happened they built the seven story tower in Studio D. So actually, when we made that right turn going into Studio A, that's the split of the building. That's where where the original building is, and and, and uh, the seven story building was built basically on top of it, or next to it, and on top. I think we're definitely in the wrong business. <laughs> Maybe we should be film producers. Film people, yeah, yeah, yeah. Records make one story buildings. <laughs> movies, <laughs> movies make seven story buildings. Yes, they do. So a mutual friend of ours, Jerry Stucker, brought me by uh, different Fur Studios right, many years ago. Right. You were the engineer there. And I remember walking away from that experience of being a fly in the wall, thinking, that Adam guy, yeah. he has it dialed in. He has his shit together. And I was really, <laughs> I was I was taken by what was clearly strong talent, but I was also taken by just your demeanor in the studio and everything about you. It was like, it just exuded pro oh, well, to thanks. me. Thanks. Unfortunately, Jerry drinks decaf. <laughs> I won't hold that against him, but... Um, <laughs> Let's go back prior to that. We'll we'll touch on that sure. different fur era. How did you get started? I guess it all really started. I was I was uh, a DJ during high school. I mean, eight, eighth grade, I started DJing and bought the records, bought the turntables, all that kind of stuff. And all through that period, I was always just looking at the back of records, and it was always like mixed at so and so. You know, you would you'd see all the different names showing up at all the different that's uh, you know on different records and seeing what style of music was coming out of certain studios and all of that. And um, obviously, I didn't want to be playing records 
my whole life. It just felt like a natural natural progression to go from playing them to, to, to wanting to make them. So I started recording people at my house. And then one day um, I saw an ad for uh, Full Sail and never in a million years thought that we'd be able to afford going there. But my mom made it happen. And within a year I was there. And, you know, I still remember the first time walking into a studio there and it was like the smell of 456, <laughs> you know, and it was like, this is where I want to be. That's kind of how, kind of how that started. Did you complete the program? Yeah. Yeah. Back then, it's, this was 1990s. So back then it was only a, a nine month, 10 month program or something like that. But it came out with an AA there. But at that time, it was really strange because when I came out of there, people were like, you went to school for this? Like it was such a strange thing at that time to have gone to, to engineering school. Because, you know, when I applied to other places, it was like, yes, they had interns, but they were people who just sort of came out however they came out and, and worked their way up from making coffee and all that. <laughs> So, I mean, I, I obviously did that, but it was still like, oh, well, this guy went to school for this. So it was strange, but within about five years, it was like so strange that you didn't go to school for it. So graduated full sail, moved out here to, to the Bay and got a job at um, Brilliant Studios. I don't know if you remember Brilliant. Norm Kerner. Norm Kerner's Brilliant Studios, yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, they had a position there that had, had an apartment above the studio. Apartment, it was a, you know, a bedroom, a kitchen, and in the offices and like all that kind of stuff. Apartment. Yeah, yeah, it was it was connected to all the rest of the the offices and everything, but so there was no real privacy, but it was still it gave me the opportunity to move here and have a place to live. And so this was October 91. And I worked there for for a bit. And of course, it was the internship where you, you kind of did everything. I mean, it was it was nonstop. I was the live-in guy, so they always knew where to find you, <laughs> if even if you weren't officially on a session. So I mean, they were they were great, really, really good days there because I was constantly working. I mean, it was just if they had to book a session or if they wanted to book a session, I was on it because they didn't really have a big staff there. I was basically the only chief assistant engineer and you know whatever came in the door I, I assisted on and always assisted for norm whenever he was doing projects it was like 20 hours a day seven days a week i mean i was 19 so it was <laughs> you could do it you were invincible yeah then. but but it was it was an amazing time because you you just so many different engineers were coming through there carl durfler mark senesak i mean just guys that that you know and who are amazing engineers and you know i just learned so much from them and it was just intense. I mean, it was just nonstop because the place was fairly busy at that time. You know, we had, I think within a week of me being there, um, Faith and More came in to do demos for Angel Dust. And then they eventually came back and later did some work there. But it was just, you know, it was a great, it was a cool place to be. A lot of good records and learning from a lot of really good engineers. How did you initially get that gig? That was actually from placement from Full Sail, actually. They had... They had a, a person who was who had been placed there that won't, that was leaving, and so the spot opened up. That was one of five potential interviews that I had leaving Full Sail, and the other four were in LA, and they all fell apart. It just never happened. You know, I got out there and Colin, and never got answers back. And it, this was the one, <laughs> the one interview that still stuck. So I drove up here, and you know, within a couple of days, they let me know, and I've been here ever since. So, I mean, moving to San Francisco was never in the plan, but I'm so happy it, it, it just sort of happened that way. Where did you grow up initially? I grew up in Santa Barbara. So to me, you know, it was, of course I'm going to LA. It's an hour and a half away from home, that kind of thing. So, uh, you know, coming up here. But again, having the apartment there, having all of that was just what got me up here at that time. Tell me about how you survived at that period of time. Um, well, <laughs> a lot of clients feeding me uh, because I wasn't being paid at, 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 the, at the time. I was still technically an intern. But... You know, I also didn't have to pay to live there. So, and I never left. I mean, there were times where I would I would walk out of the building and realize, I don't think I've stepped foot out of here in a week. You know, I mean, this was wow. This was that intense. And I loved it because at that time it was just go, 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 working, you know, and and meeting people and so excited. I mean, I'm 19 and I'm living here in the city and you know, I never got to see it, <laughs> but, but, uh, you're, you know, you're a studio prisoner. Yeah, kind of, but it was just so, it was great. And, um, you know, again, just learning from all everybody. I remember one time there were, there were two back to back 24 hour sessions. And I mean, it was just so 48 hours straight and, you know, I wasn't going to complain. <laughs> that was, that was awesome. And so anyway, you know, kind of, I went through all of that, that internship period. Um, it was supposed to be six months and then it was, over six months, and then it was kind of like, hey, can I start getting paid, please? And, you know, it, it, it didn't roll that way there, and that was fine. I'm, you know, 
But at that time, I got lucky and I was working with um, a lot of people who had worked at Different Fur or who had come up through Different Fur. So Mark Senesak, Ron Riggler, you know, people who were like, hey, you know, Adam Fur is looking for somebody. And, you know, I, I called Howard and came in for an interview and, and, and then 12 years later, <laughs> I was still there. So, and, it, and for the listener, just to give a little oh, bit correct. of context. So Different Fur was a studio that was started by Pat Gleason, if I'm correct. Yeah. You might hear Pat Gleason's name as a credit uh, occasionally on NPR type things. Uh, that's where I I continue to hear his name. So Pat Gleason started it, and then was Howard and Susan so, Howard Johnston and Susan Skaggs Skaggs. Yeah, were they the the, the successors to? They Pat? were. So what happened? So Howard was a, a staff engineer there. Susan had been in a, the front office uh, person for a while there, and then she moved over to the Automat. And so she was part of all of that for, for many years. And eventually when Pat decided to sell the studio in I think 86, 85, 86, Howard called Susan and said, hey, there's a chance for us to be able to buy the studio or you in. And they did it, you know, and they they made a, they made a great run out of that studio. That that time period at Different Fur was really just a golden era of great records and great leadership. I mean, Susan and Howard are, are I can say enough about them as 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 studio owners, as friends, as mentors, you know, as studio parents to me, really, because I grew up there. I mean, I, I really started started there at 19 and um, was there for about 12 years before they decided to sell it. You said something very interesting there that I don't think I've had a discussion with any of my guests about. You said studio leadership. Talk to me a little bit about what that means to you and what Howard and Susan, how they... How they, uh, how they approached it? Yeah. Um, I mean, they were... I have to think about this one because there's so much with with how they ran the place. I mean, they were they definitely were separate. Susan was upstairs and handled the booking and handled the way the studio ran with clients. Ben Howard was downstairs and handled the engineering staff and how things ran in the control room. And it's not that they never crossed over, but it was definitely you know Susan was upstairs, Howard <laughs> was downstairs, and it was it was rare to see Susan come into the control room because she you know they just that was his space. Howard was strict, but he was very fair, and he was never mean strict. It was just, these are how things or sessions going to go. You know, I want things set up like this. I want them set up by this time. Susan was kind of the same way, but it was more of like, you know, the client's going to be here at this time. You know, make sure there's coffee. Make sure the front end, you know, all that kind of stuff is clean. <laughs> you know, make make sure the place looks like nobody else had been here. You know, like when you, when you walk in as a client, you want to feel special and that this is your time and your space and that you don't see cigarette butts from last night's session still out in an ashtray or whatever, that kind of thing. But it also, too, was clients came first. They never said no. There was That was one of their big things was like you'd never say no to a client. So whatever it was they needed, gear, uh, time, or or just, you know, it was always clients came first. You know, that was important there. The clients were always special and they always felt like they were special being there, even if they weren't all the different people who came out of there, Stevie Wonder and, you know, Primus and all the different groups like that. that no matter who you were, you were there and you were special. What do you recall learning from Howard in the control room about whether it was etiquette or professionalism or? Yeah, all of that professionalism, calmness. Howard was always calm. And I think, you know, I, I may have been in the back of the room quietly freaking out because, you know, I maybe didn't know enough to, to be calm. <laughs> but I learned, I think, a lot about how I deal with certain sessions is, you know, you're, you just got to be calm and, and handle whatever happens. And Howard was like that. He could just, you know, okay, okay, we're going to do this, this, and that. But it's no panic, <laughs> you know. I mean, luckily, luckily the gear, I mean, the gear always worked there. They had great maintenance. And that was another big thing about it. It was just maintenance, maintenance, maintenance. You know, Mac Clark was our tech at that time. And, you know, everything worked. You know, I can I can only recall maybe one or two sessions where something catastrophic happened that just that's it. Power supply blew up today. That, you know, that's so random, that but happens. that happens. So things worked there. And, you know, it was rare that there was a session that we just couldn't handle in some sort of way. If, if something happened and like, oh, uh, you know, they they've changed it. We need to lock the tape now. Susan would get on the phone and we'd have 
something there the next day or whatever. Like uh, Susan always made sure that whatever a client needed was always there for them. You know, whether that be ADATs when they started rolling in, we'd had to rent ADATs to get in there. We were always calling Jarvis. Hey, can you bring in this or that? Can you? And just, sorry, yeah, just for- uh, Stephen Jarvis. Stephen Jarvis is a another Bay Area guy, actually, who I should probably interview at some point. <laughs> I'm sure he's got some interesting perspective and stories. I but Stephen Jarvis has kind of been one of the go-to rental guys in the yeah. Bay Area for years. Yeah. He and Dave Denny. Dave Denny, yeah. So that's, if you hear us talk about Stephen Jarvis, that's what we're referring to. Dave Denny, to. Tony Brooke, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we really just, again, it was client first. So whatever we needed to get through a session, it just happened. You know, if, 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 if um, I remember going to airports to pick up gear to, you know, it was last minute. Oh, so-and-so needs this. And Susan would find it in LA and it would get shipped up here and I would go to the airport and pick it up and the session would happen the next day, you know, as if it, as if it was never a problem. It was just different firms going to handle it. <laughs> so in, in that way, you know, they were just... They were great owners who cared about their clients and made every session happen. How big of an impact has that had on your career? Huge, I think, really, to be honest, because it's really still about client comes first. You know, it's, um, I always want to be available to a client. I always want to be able to, to, to go that extra mile for a client. You know, I, I think one of, the, one of the biggest things that I'm proud of is the amount of return clients that I have. I mean, there's people that I've been working with for, for close to 20 years now. You know, and that I've I'm six or seven records deep with that makes me happy that I'm still able to you know to have a relationship. I mean, there were clients at my wedding for <laughs> so some clients you just get so close to that it's like hey you know so they're at my wedding. But I think that's probably it. it's just client customer service, client service, all that kind of stuff is it was a big thing from them. When you were at different for were you just paid hourly or via salary? Or? Uh, at that time we were we were technically independent, so um, it was hourly. Okay. And um, they were always incredibly fair about what they paid you and as an assistant or as an engineer. The other thing before I even go to that, it was, is, I mean, of course, that's where I learned to become an engineer because whatever time was not booked at the studio was yours. If you wanted it, you had it. So you look in the calendar and go, okay, well, it's kind of a slow week. I'm going to put a, put a hold on these dates. And if nobody booked it, I was bringing bands in for free and not even like in the middle of the night. It was like, hey, Susan, can I bring in, you know, so-and-so tomorrow? Oh, yeah. And she'd write it in the book. She called it engineering practice, you know, and she was just, it was just free time. I mean, I had, I had thousands <laughs> of hours of free time over there over the 12 years and was able to really, to bring in clients who not so much that couldn't have afforded for, because that was the end kind of thing was like maybe bring them in for a few hours and then show them what the studio was like and then they would book time through susan but but it was always like hey you know i met this band and do you guys want to come in for a few hours and check it out or whatever you know that's how i learned how to how to engineer middle of the night or even you know whenever it was just just in there all all the time and then they were fine with it it was never a hey can you get these bands to start paying money it was engineering practice time and it you know in the end it helped them because then it was like you know susan susan would hear some of the stuff I was doing or or whatever, or just know that I was getting to that level where she could send me clients. Cause you know, I'm still 2021 20, at this point and you know, still still assisting and still trying to figure out my world as as far as being an engineer. And, you know, it wasn't we had other engineers at that time there that were still there. Ron Regler was still engineering out of there. So there were other engineers that she would give sessions to. But slowly it became, okay, I can give you this one, I can give you this one, I can give you this one. And so, you know, that's that's how it really started with the trust from that and, and the free time. Yeah. <laughs> really. What a great compliment too that, that free time to kind of exercise whatever experiments or ideas you want complemented with the time spent with Howard. Right. Or, or yeah. Others. others learning there and then taking at the end of the day and, and, you know, saying, Hey, I want to try this trick now and, and all that. So, you know, as, as long as it didn't interfere with you being there on a regular session, then it was fine. You know? And at that time, I think Fur had an SSL G. Uh, we had there was an E series four thousand E. Yeah, they okay. put that in, and I think eighty five or eighty six. And it's actually it's actually the sister board to the the one downstairs in Fantasy. They're they're one serial number apart, apparently built at the same time. So they uh, <laughs> the same same four thousand E. Interesting. With G computer. And at that time, that was pre Pro Tools. Oh yeah, oh, in way. a big way. Oh yeah. And so that was kind of 
state of the art for the industry. They were, I believe. I think, I think for they, I think they were the first to have an SSL. I think the Fantasy and Fur ordered them at the same time, but I think Fur installed it first. I, I could be wrong on that, but so they had that. They also had the first digital session. I think there was a Sony or a, um, I forget what machine was in there, but they the first you know two forty eight track digital two four twenty four track digital session was done there. A lot of first, they might have been the first to have Sonic Solutions in the Bay Area. You know, a lot of first came out of there was, you know, again, it's a great studio. And that's, again, to Howard. Howard was always, what's the new thing? What's, what's not so much to jump on and be like, okay, we're going to, we're going to throw away analog or we're going to do this. It was like, what's going to make the next record this much better? And it was, it was always getting sort of that idea. But, you know, it was, um, if it was, if it was buying an Apogee converter, if it was, you know, updating to Sonic Solutions or, or changing the system or whatever, there was always little increments in it that he was always about doing. And I think he still is that today. I mean, it's Howard's still, still out there doing it. So, you know, he just emailed me the other day about how I clock my Lavery ADD converter because you know I, I still don't know why he asked me that question. But <laughs> <laughs> he's always thinking. he's always thinking. Yeah, yeah. How is Adam clocking that thing? No, uh-huh. I still have to ask him why he asked me that. But he's always striving to get that much better. No, that stuff. was a one room facility. It was at that time. Yeah, one room. There was an upstairs where they had, you know had plans to make a second room that never happened, and it just became an office and and all that. I haven't been back there since they sold it in two thousand and four. So, but I know that I've heard that there's a room on the second floor now and all that, but I, I've never had a... And Patrick Brown runs yeah, it now. Yeah, I've never had a chance to meet Patrick. I wish I, I, wish I could. I'm sure I can and will, but... Uh, you got to get out. Man. I know, I do, I do, I do. But um, I, I hear, obviously, the places he's keeping the legacy going, so I'm really proud that that's still going and, and you know, always proud to say I've, you know, at that time, Adam from Different Fur. I mean, that's kind of how it was, you know, like, even when I first came here at Fantasy, I mean, Nina and, and Susan were, were good friends, so... I mean, you got to explain who Nina is. Okay, sorry. Nina Nina Bombardier was the manager here at Fantasy for twenty plus years, and she came, I think, from the plant, the record plant at that time. I think she was even there when when Fleetwood Mac did Rumors. I think. Anyway, so so when I came over here for the first time to do a session, which was in about ninety six, I think. You know, Nina knew who I was through Susan and welcomed me with open arms. It was just like it wasn't, you know, it wasn't competition. It wasn't. It was never between. It was never never like that between Susan and. and Nina was always like fantasy and different. We have different clients, or however that was. It was never a, a thing. So when I came over, I you know I think even Nina gave me a hug. It was like, hey, nice to meet you, kind of thing. So that really helped me because at that time, again, I was still independent at Fur, but I was you know I was on staff, but I was still technically independent. It was always okay that I went to other studios. You know, I mean, of course, if I had a chance to bring a project back, that's fine, but. If something took me somewhere else, that was okay. And so I came here to do something. You know, met Nina, met the staff here, and somehow that turned into her calling me, hey, I have a project, would you be interested? And then into a couple more projects, and then finally it was, you're going to be here on the weekend, let me give you a key. <laughs> and then that turned into eventually later, hey, um, let me give you a key card or something. I mean, I forget how that kind of really went, but but it was really just sort of evolved into... I remember walking in here one day and I had a I had a mailbox at the at the front. They had my name on the box and I had I had mail in it and I was just like, okay, <laughs> cool, you know. I'm uh, <laughs> I've earned my own I, mailbox. I've earned my own cubby hole and mailbox here. <laughs> so I mean that was exciting, you know. That was and again at that time where I was starting to 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 not just be at fur as much and of course not assisting anymore at fur and and but still engineering for Susan working a lot at uh, at Prairie Sun working here at Fantasy and then um you know and eventually it was kind of just I was between the two for for a while and then you know eventually sort of doing a lot of work over at San Francisco Soundworks so that might have happened a little bit more after fur finally closed or switched ownership right. um that I sort of needed a new home and it was sort of bopping between Fantasy Soundworks and Prairie Sun, and eventually even to um, Mark Keller's Boomtown, where I worked with Mark for a few years. Um, yeah, Boomtown. Yeah, I'll t- yeah. I'll share a story. Uh, <laughs> I was doing. Uh, I was interning. I had a paid internship under Dave Greenberg uh, there at at Boomtown, doing this this internship, and I and I was very fortunate because Fred Catero, mm-hmm. yeah, legendary Fred Catero was there. Yeah, and there was. Um, uh, it was Jeffrey Cohen and um, and and Mark Keller. Mark. It was Keller and Cohen. Keller and Cohen. And uh, they had uh, uh, this person will remain nameless, but uh, they had a person running the show there, and uh, she fired me unceremoniously 
I, I had announced, I said, well, I'm not going to be here next week because I got to go up to Portland to make a record. And uh, when I returned, I had a voicemail. We will no longer be needing your services. <laughs> and I laugh to oh, this man. day about that. I was just like, and when I see Dave Greenberg, we, we, we laugh about, about that. Too, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so sorry to no, hijack no, no. your story. But, you know, working there was great because it was really, you know, just working for Mark and his commercial clients and his voiceover work. So it was pretty, you know, just mornings and it, it never stopped me from doing sessions here or at wherever else. Cause it was like, I'd get there by nine, be out by noon or something and, and book a session elsewhere. So it was, you know, it was a great place to just sort of make some extra money and meet some you know different people. Cause I wasn't really into doing a lot of ad work at that time or, or any voiceover work, but it also helped me, to to get into voiceover and, and ADR and that kind of work, which helped to be able to do more sessions at Fantasy, because they they need they needed work like that, uh, or people to be able to do that. We didn't do a whole lot of that at Fur, so this was growing more into to voiceover, you know, for video games or or you know animation or whatever. So so that was that was a good time period too. That helped me for when I finally got on staff here at, at Fantasy. It was my music background plus ADR and Foley and voiceover work and all that kind of stuff. By the time you, you were approaching those things, I mean, voiceover is one thing, but like ADR work and maybe, you know, getting into where you're uh, incorporating film and, and sound together, the workflows that come with that, um, you know, you have a certain, you have, you have your experience with audio, right? How do you gain that knowledge without? Uh... Yeah, see, that's the thing. That's what was great about working there was because it it wasn't necessarily in the hot seat because it was with Mark. It was just usually the two of us. I wasn't thrown into a, a big session and all of a sudden here mix film or here all of a sudden figure out how to do ADR. It was like I was able to sort of do it baby steps in, in sort of a way at at that studio because it was it was usually pretty low key on his time and. I, it, it is a different, it's such a different workflow. And, and to be honest, it's, it's never, it's not that it's, it's not my thing, but it's not my thing. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, I like doing music and that's where, where my head is. But we, we get so many different sessions here at Fantasy that, you know, I'm, I'm able to do those sessions, you know, they can give me those sessions, but I'm not going to be a film guy. You know, I'm, I, that's, that would to me feel like starting over at some point. And I do, I just can't do that right now. Maybe that's not, a good decision for me to make this far into my career to switch like that. It, it's a little intimidating yeah. when, when you get kind of secure in your own worlds and workflows, and then you see something like this film studio we're in. It's like, God, I don't, I don't know if I could do that. Right. It's you know, it's and I've done small, very small film things, and and you know, as long as it's basic, I, I th- yeah, I thought it was fun and it was enjoyable. But then there was like, I don't know. Part of me feels like. You know, when I mix a record, it's like I get to sit there and be creative, and I'm the one in the middle, and it's it's the world that I'm trying to create. And when I was doing some of the film stuff, I mean, there were two or three other people doing other things that we all had to sort of, you know, work together with. And I'm not saying I don't work well with others, but at the same time, at the end of the day, it didn't feel like my mix. I was contributing to it, but there's nothing like the feeling when you walk away from a, a mix you've been working on all day, and it's like that. Not that that's mine, but I did that, and right. and you know it's. I think I think the in the end of the day, it's. A, I just love, I love mixing music more than that. Adam Munoz here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. We're going to pause, and I'm going to tell you all about the blue black headphones from Audio Technica. That's right, our friends over at Audio Technica have a new set of limited edition headphones. It's the uh, ATHM 50Xs in a blue black color. Very beautiful. If you're tired of the same old dull black and you want to do something a little snazzier, then these blue black ones are pretty fancy. So uh, check them out. They're a limited edition. You can get them at audio-technica.com. You can buy them right off the website. And uh, that's it. Check them out. Great looking headphones. Let's get back to it. Adam Munoz here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. You're a staff person here at Fantasy. Right. Uh, does that mean you get a paycheck they've sort of they've changed it why i'm technically i'm still staff but we are we're independent contractors again there was a time years ago where we were staff that were you know we were paid regular paycheck salaries basically you know and had vacation time and all that kind of stuff but they've, they've changed it and we're, we're back to 
to, to independence, which actually made me really happy. It was a good move back because, to be honest, as, you know, as I sort of did miss working other at other places. You know, there's something about being in a new room that's exciting and new gear and different gear. I mean, not to say that you get into a rut or anything like that here, but you know, it's 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 fun when you kind of travel. You know, like I missed. You know, I, I did a record in Barcelona. I did a record in, you know, Vegas and L.A. and New York. And, you know, there was a time where I got to travel and, you know, bring my wife with me and we'd, you know, have a vacation while I was out working somewhere. And that I missed a little bit. And now that we're back to being independent, you know, I have, I am working at other studios. And, you know, it's just, it's okay. You know, we're, that's the way they've structured it here. And, you know, if I need to take a week off to go somewhere else, that's just the way it is. But it's turned out to be a really good thing. So that you just bill hourly here. We do, yeah. It's just a, just an hourly thing. Did that alter your rate? Yeah, I mean, we went back up to you know what we felt the three of us here felt were was market rate for engineers of of our years of your caliber. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and and you know Alberto Hernandez and Jesse Nichols are the other, the other two engineers here. So the three of us are are the core staff engineering staff here. But again, we still can work with clients as far as helping with rates and all that kind of kind of work but basically we're still hired through the studio or what happens mostly is we're requested by the client so if a client's calling fantasy to book time generally they have one of us in mind and if they don't then you know the, the you know jeffrey pairs the client with whoever would be best with the session that kind of thing so we all we the three of us have our own world of clients our old orbit of people we do share some you know that that just makes it easier for clients to get in you know we talk about how we were we were both kind of somewhat intimidated by the film thing and the workflow and how that would, you know, alter your, uh, your day-to-day work schedule, I guess. I always think from my perspective, how I work, my work is largely built around my family and my two kids. And I always, I look at what you do you don't have kids, correct? I don't have kids. No. Um, yeah, you just have to. I I have always been so impressed by guys who have kids, you know, and families and, and all that, and how they make it work. You know, it just blows my mind. I mean, you know, I see some great posts from you, you know, posting your out with your kids, and just you know, that's that's aw- that's amazing to me, and how you can you can do what you're doing and, and have that life too. I think that's just so impressive. And, but and, well, and it, it, the grass is always greener, or or, <laughs> or or appears to be better than it is in some respects. You know, in social media, because you know, quite honestly, like it'd be great to have a staff oh, situation right. like this. Sure, but I couldn't like stop the session in the middle of the day, right? And See, go, the, ex- I got to go pick, pick up, up my, my kids. kids. Yeah, absolutely, you know? and and that's why I'm always blown away how how people can juggle all of that. But you know, for, for currently, you know, Alberto, Jesse, and I don't have children, right? <laughs> you know, I'm not going to speak for the two of them, but. But uh, I don't see how that, yeah, that is tough because we are, it's, you're booked here and you can't just stop a session and, and go do that. Right. Because when you're independent or more independent, you know, you, yeah, you can set your hours differently. And, and in some ways we can do that here, but it's still the client who's calling the studio and wanting to book 10 to 8 or, or whatever it is or, you know, whatever the schedule happens to be. Or even we get a lot of weekend clients here. And so there's... You know, there's there's times where you don't get weekends for quite a while. And that's part of, you know, just how I feel how important this work is to me that, you know, my wife, of course, hates it, but she understands and, and I make it up to her or I know there are certain times where I just need to block myself out. But the same thing as being independent, you just you need to take work when you can. And so, you know, it's feast or famine. I mean, I. I just came off of a, I think, one day off in a 40-day stint. They weren't all 10-hour days, but right. they were certainly days where I had to come over and it was most of my afternoon. You know, but now, you know, journey just loaded in. We're going to be, you know, they booked two rooms. So I've got about a week or 10 days where, you know, I may or may not get into Studio A. And so, you know, it it, it still balances itself out. It happened to be on my wife's birthday weekend. So we, <laughs> you know, we, we rented a house in, in Guerneville and, you know, going to, go up for a little while so that's a weird balance but it's still a balance i mean it could just be a lot at one time and a little bit at one another time and that's the sort of how it's been i mean my wife you know she's she's great because she's she's known me all my engineering career but she wasn't i didn't know her when i was you know at fur and working you know nonstop until i was 25 26 as an assistant or an engineer she knew me through the lean years where i was trying to become an engineer and wasn't always working. So when we got together, it was, you know, I might've worked four days a month at that point. I mean, it was, these were the dark days of, of post nine 11 where 
studios were closing and the bubble had, you know, the the first dot com bubble out here had popped and she she was there for that. So she, you know, was there for the struggle of getting to where I am now. And so she understands, you know, and it's it's tough. Yeah, and she works in the healthcare industry. So like so from a healthcare perspective, you get your health care through your wife. I always have actually to be honest. I because she works for Kaiser, I was I put on her insurance. I at the time when Fantasy was having employees, they they offered health care. Yeah. But I, you know, I had better coverage through my wife and, and all that. So but luckily, you know, again now as an independent, I'm still on her plan and it, you know, all all that all that works. But I guess I'm lucky that I'm in the situation where I am now where I don't understand how people who are coming up today are doing it because the Bay Area is so expensive and getting jobs are almost non-existent. I mean, fantasy, I mean, there's no turnover here. (laughs) There's independents that that can come and be in the orbit, but, but as far as assisting gigs, that's almost not, just doesn't happen. It is hard to be here because of the cost of living and your journey that you've taken I don't know if that same journey could be repeated yeah, in the Bay Area in the, Bay Area in the now. same way. Because- I don't think so either. I really don't because we, you know, when I see how how I, you know, got the free apartment when I first moved here and how that worked and then moving out and getting the job at Fur and, you know, that being such a family home place that I was able to kind of grow up at, you know, there aren't places like that, I don't think now. I mean, it's certainly not that type of environment here where we have... I mean, we we get fleets of interns every year, and they're all going to school. I don't know how that's going to translate into jobs in the Bay Area for for them because there's not a lot of turnover at studios, and you know, short of short of them buying their own gear and striking out on their own, I'm not sure. You just, I guess, it's just a matter of being lucky, being good and lucky, and, and you know, that brings up a, an interesting concept, though, and in that if you are a fantasy studios and you're you know, you have interns come here and there, but really the core people stay here and grow older here. At some point, you know, one of you may, you know, the, the life circumstances will change and one of you may not be here. Then the challenge is, is to bring in qualified people. And that when, that's when it becomes difficult, I think. For I the, think so, for but at the same time, there's, I mean, there's, there are so many just, badass engineers in this town that that you could look at and say hey i wonder if this person would be interested in being more tied to this place or or and, and that's almost how it, i came to be here i mean even i mean i know there was that period where we're with with nina who in the key and the cart the alarm code and all that kind of stuff but but it wasn't really until jeffrey came on staff here or became the studio director here in 2007 jeffrey Woods. jeffrey wood uh, and i'd been working with jeffrey since about 95 or 96 you know, I had a relationship with him. I was doing a lot of records with him. And so when he came on board here, you know, I think in the back of my mind, I thought, oh, cool, I'll be working a little bit more at Fantasy because Jeffrey's there and he's, he might be doing more projects there and all that kind of stuff. And when he finally asked if I would be interested in coming on staff here, you know, I know this sounds crazy, but I, I, thought, I thought at the time that I was going to say no because I was starting to be, I was, I was pretty busy as, as an independent. I liked at that time having the freedom to, to have my own schedule, you know, again, I was, I was able to go, you know, to Barcelona for 10 days and have an amazing experience and then thinking, oh, maybe, you know, maybe things are going to be more like this. You know, I, I, and part of me didn't, didn't want to get tied back down to a place, but you know, my wife kind of talked me into it. And I said, okay, well, let's, you know, even with Jeffrey, I said, let's, let's try it. Let's see how this works. Because, you know, because at that time I had clients that worked at other studios. So it was like, how am I going to convince these people to come over here? Because it's, it's, you know, it's more expensive. So there was that transition period, you know, to be honest, and then things just sort of happened in the Bay. With, with 2008, that was the economic downturn. Studios were closing left and right. And, you know, at the end of the day, I, I feel that that might have been my luckiest move was was getting on staff here at that time because I had a home base and because we were busy kind of stuff. So I've stayed. It's turned into an even better situation where I'm still here, but yet I can still work elsewhere or bring clients here. I mean, it's a, it's a little bit of a different world here, but it's still a very busy studio, and I'm lucky to to be a part of that. Do you have a home rig? No, home? I don't. You know, um, uh, I have acquired gear, but it's it's gear for me at studios. Um, like, so I, I really don't have anything at home. I mean, Pro Tools on my laptop, but nothing that I would, would invite clients over to the house for. So, you know, I, I keep my gear here if I need to take it elsewhere. It's are in flight places, and I pack them up and take them. But what kind of gear have you acquired over um, years? You know, originally I started with buying re- a lot of you know, reverbs because I was mixing at 
Soundworks. I was mixing at the plant. I was mixing at Prairie Sun in here. And not all four places had all the same outboard gear or as far as reverbs that I like to use or whatever. And I always, there were some clients that I had to mix their project in, in, at all different places. So I wanted to be able to have a way to keep a sound of a record similar, you know. So I bought like a, a Kurtzwald KSP-8, then, you know, I think some TC stuff and, you know, an Avalon. Just just mixed gear that I'd like to to have consistent at other studios. Eventually bought the Lavery Gold A to D. I have a set of barefoot monitors, the Microman 45s. You know, and, and all that stuff goes something if I have to go elsewhere. But it was always kind of acquiring a mix gear because everywhere I was working, you know, I mean, come on, I'm not, I'm never going to beat a mic cabinet at any great place around town. I mean, there's, there's 47s everywhere. There's, there's just great mics. So I'm never going to buy mics. Everybody has the, the LA-2As, the Poltex. I mean, you know, most places have something similar to that. So I wasn't going to buy outboard gear like that. So it was always just more gear specific to what effects I wanted to use on a mix, I guess. Back to survival and kind of financial-based uh, question. How have you managed money over time? I mean, obviously, with, <laughs> with, with having a wife that's working a, a full-time job, obviously that helps the household. But as a recording professional, how have you done that? Probably not as great as I could have. I mean, yeah. there's definitely a lot of maxed out credit cards, loans, get loans for gear, that kind of stuff that I just, you know, pay off over time. But at the same time, it was just, these were things I knew I needed to have for me to be able to move forward and, and make better records at the end of the day. You know, I mean, it's not about, the, really, it's not about the gear, but but being able to offer your clients a certain thing that other people might not be able to offer. You know, um, you know, the lavery was was a big thing. It was like, well, you know, that's, that's I, I can't even think of what studio has one right now. The Lavery Gold, anyway. Trilogy did it, I think, at one point. But, you know, a lot of debt and, and a lot of being lucky and also living in a rent-controlled apartment for, you know, for a long time. You know, there's just, I've been in the Bay long enough that we're not, you know, we're not like the new people coming in who are paying $4,500 for a one-bedroom apartment, oh, you know, which is... Which is really which what's is, going Which on. is the apartment above me. They renovated it, and it now goes for forty five. It's the same floor plan as us, but we don't play anywhere near that because we've been there for 20 years. So, again, I don't know how people can do it with the, the way the Bay is now. I think if I, if I wasn't lucky enough to be in that position of where I'm living now, you know, there would be no gear. There would be <laughs> a lot more struggling. So, um, you know, I guess just the amount of time that I've been in here in the Bay Area, I've just been lucky enough to to be in the position. You live in San Francisco. Yeah, I live in North Beach. In North Beach. Okay, yeah. so, and uh, you and your wife both commute to the East Bay? She works mostly from home, but she does work at the Kaiser building over in, in, in Oakland. So it's an easy, you know, I, I can drop her off in the morning before a session. You worked with a lot of people, a lot of bands, a lot of producers, I'm sure. Yeah. What are some of the lessons in the studio, not from a gear or technique perspective, but what are some life lessons that you've learned that stick with you or that shape you or have shaped you? I mean, so many of the amazing people that I've worked with just, you can tell, I mean, obviously they love what they do, but there's not just that. There's just an extra, there's an extra layer of dedication or passion or, or whatever you want to call it. I mean, it's like, I don't want to say it comes first, but in a lot of ways, I mean, this is the big love of your life. It means so much to you that you're going to do whatever it takes to make it happen or successful. You know, there's, um, again, just some of the people you've worked with, you just see that. I mean, not to say that they they drop everything in their life to be in this control room, but you hear about their struggles with balancing family life and, and work life and all that kind of stuff. And maybe you learn from a mistake that they made. What are some of the the lessons about working in studios that you know of that others would love to hear. Maybe one good example is, you know, I work with Lee Townsend a lot. And, you know, Lee is actually, he's not only a music producer, but he's also um, a psychologist, like professional psychologist. And he, he'd only been doing that in the last maybe five years. But looking back at the records we've made together, I can see where that helped in situations that we were in, how we dealt with clients and how we could, you know, talk them off a ledge or how we can bring something out of them. Because, I mean, not that he was getting into their head, but he could he could really analyze the situation and help that person out in, in whatever whatever they were going through in their head. Get, get through the roadblock. Get through the roadblock for whether it be, you know, um, something musical or something in their personal life or whatever was impacting the session you know, he was able to really be there for a client. And, and in a lot of ways, we all do that. You know, like we get a lot of clients who don't have producers. And, and as the engineer, you're, you're kind of, 
you're there to help them. And maybe learning from Lee how to deal with a person's, maybe not what they're saying to you in the room, but you get a vibe of what might be going on or how you might be able to help them because you know there's something personal you know, going on you know, personally. So, you know, that that might be one one big thing, learning how to learning from Lee how to sort of, you know, um, not so much pick up the vibe of somebody, but be able to help them through through a roadblock, like yeah. you said. Yeah. You're hired for a session. There's no producer. The band or the artist comes in. At what point do you feel comfortable to speak up and, yeah. and offer that? Sure. Kind of, yeah, that's, know, that's always tough. It's like watching somebody going, <laughs> wait for it, wait, wait for, for it. it. Should I say something? Right. Okay. Here comes the mistake that I saw half an hour ago right. that kind of thing um it depends on the on the client for sure because i think i think i i think i'm different with clients who have called and requested me to work with them here at, at fantasy um and clients who who didn't necessarily request me who i'm just getting to learn like i mean literally may have never met or they come in and i'm just sort of feeling out and we kind of it's the whole get to know you first half hour of a session, all that kind of stuff. You might be able to tell pretty early on that okay, this might be somebody who, who, who might not want my help, and so let's see how that goes. Or it's somebody who's struggling, and you're going to go, okay, I'm going to help you out right now. Let me here. This is we're not going to set this up this way because here's why. I know you want to do it this way, but here's why this isn't going to work. Here's the five different reasons why this isn't going to work. Okay, you know. And again, there are people who who don't want that, and and you feel that vibe pretty quick too. So then you sort of have to go through the mistake, and then maybe either because you know how to fix it, mm-hmm. you know, because they're not going to listen to you anyway. And Do you ever have clients come in and say, "Okay, we're going to cut drums today," and maybe they have no experience in the studio? I want to. I heard that this was a cool technique. Can we try that? Yeah, yeah. We get a lot of people who've read too many articles. Oh. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, seriously, you know, uh, and uh, and I'm completely down with trying stuff. I mean, I I'm oh cool, yeah, let's let's try that. But I'm still going to put up something that I know is going to work, and then add to that. So if you know, you know, if somebody says I want fifty sevens on everything, uh, okay, well, okay, let's go that route. But I'm going to you know maybe I'll put a sub kick over here. I mean, this has never happened, but the idea is, you know, you you know, you know that this might not be the best road, and they're not going to be happy at the end of the day. But they heard it a cool trick somewhere and in that kind of thing. So I'm happy to do other people's cool tricks and but also make sure that I'm covered and at the end of the day they didn't walk out of here with, with something they're not gonna be happy with. Do you ever have sessions where you defer to the client the entire time and then they realize, oh well I, I made a mistake. I, a, a little bit, but I think I think with here people know that we obviously know these rooms better than anybody. You know, there's there are certain ways you work these rooms that, you know, you, if if you come in here and, and want to do it a whole different way, that's fine. But we'll also be able to tell you, well, you might not want to have the timbales in the same room with the with the piano, okay? <laughs> and you're doing that because you're gonna you're gonna want to get keeper scratch vocals, so we can't use one of the ISO booths now. And at the end of the day, you're gonna replace a hundred percent of those scratch vocals, right? So there, there might be a negotiation where it's like, let's put you in a different room that might not be as great as the little ISO booths, but you're still going to be able to get scratch vocal, but we're also going to be able to put the piano in the other room and the tabellies aren't going to be in the piano mics. So stuff like that happens with these rooms where we just sort of know where things, what things shouldn't be in the same room together or play well with, or, you know, you might have a conversation with them like, this is why this might not be the best idea. People tend to trust you because it's like, okay, well, these people obviously know these rooms here. But it doesn't happen all that often, to be honest, because, I mean, again, most people either are coming here either either to work with me or to work in these great rooms, and they know that I know it. They're, most people are, are pretty good about that. Where, where things might go wrong is they might have a plan about how much they want to do in a day, and that's not realistic. I mean, we got, I mean, believe me, there's so many records that here, let's mix, let's mix 10 songs in a day. People try to bite off more than they can chew, and, and they don't know the process when they come in here. And, and, and that's the kind of stuff that you can't, gu- you can't really guide them out of because they have a set budget, and this is what they need to get done. So you're really just trying to, to manage their time in the way that they need it done because of a budget and get the best sound for what it's going to happen at the end of the day. You know, if you're, if you're blazing through mixes... You know, there's only so much you can do in in ten or twelve passes of a song, because you know a song's 
you know, however long it is. And if you're going to mix it in an hour, you're only going to get a few passes through it. And so, you know, there's, there's something where it's hard to talk people out of, but you know, again, that's, that's a budget thing, which always kind of surprises me too, because, you know, there are plenty of records that, that have come in like that, where they want to blaze through it because they're on a budget. And then two weeks later, you get a phone call about wanting to come do some remixes. And all of a sudden there's two more days or something. And it's like, I think clients just need to be more realistic about their budgets and be really realistic about their budgets. Because if two days worth of budget just showed up two weeks later, where did that come from? And why wasn't that there on the front end? You know, you you go about a mix a different way when you know you have an hour or if you know you have four hours for it. So when they're trying to blaze through it in an hour or two, you build it differently. You know, I, I, I hate to, you're not cutting corners, but you're just, you're cram, you're trying to cram it all into that those two speakers and get it done in two hours because that's what they want done in two hours you build it differently if you know you have four hours so when they come back it's it's harder to rebuild that house because you pour the foundation quickly yeah (laughs) and that house is sinking and you're trying to come back and undo all that but when you really get down to it it was it was you know at the base of it so it's more work it's more work to come back and have to redo and rebuild so I think that seems to happen more lately. I'm not saying with just clients here, but kind of in general, there's just tighter budgets, you know, if there's a, a real budget at all, you know, for some things. Does fantasy offer any kind of kind of client consultation before? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So plenty of times people come over with their hard drive and they'll all open it up and look to see what's there and, and get an estimate of how long I think things will take. And, you know, sometimes people are like, that'll take four hours or, or you know, something like that. And like, You've got 90 tracks. I mean, it might even take me an hour just to map this out to the console. I had a session like that just last week that ended up being really cool. It was sort of like an Imagine Dragons kind of kind of track. And but yeah, it came layered with over 100 plus tracks. And he had booked an eight-hour session for it. And it was just like, okay, well, how am I gonna do this in eight hours? And it ended up taking 13. And he was fine with it, but it was like, this is why we probably can't do this this quickly if you want it you know, to the level you're trying to get it at. And at the end of the day, you know, it, it, it was, we were both happy and I was, you know, proud of kind of what we had done with that. And, but where did that extra five hours <laughs> come from, you know, money-wise when it was like, oh, I got to do it in eight, you know, that kind of thing. So you just have to be realistic about what, you know, what your, what your ultimate budget is, I guess, you know. Where do you see yourself in 10 years and 20 years out? You know, I hope, I, to be honest, I hope it's just doing a lot of the same. You know, I, I just enjoy what, what this is and how mixing records. Uh, I don't know if, if studios like Fantasy will be around in 20 years. I mean, I, I, I believe this place will be. You know, yeah. were you going to knock on I the was S6, knock on, yeah. but there's no wood. There's so no layers gonna, over here. You're going to knock on the racks. <laughs> right. Um, you know, I, I just hope to be making good records with fun people. I mean, we, I, I, again, when I go back to like people that I've worked with, you know, with return clients and people who've become friends and, you know, uh, a community like the, the, you know, I, we do a lot of jazz at fantasy. There's just, the rooms are, these rooms are just great. I mean, people can, can see each other. They can hear each other. They can all be in the same room, the, you know, great headphone system. There's such a really good local jazz community. And I know that they're struggling with places to play and, and make money at here in, in the in the area, but we all can also, I mean, those guys can knock out records in one or two days, and you know they've got something out to sell. And so we do a lot of jazz here. You know, we we do so much here. I mean, there's there's so much that that comes through the door that I don't see going away. Music's not going to go away. Voiceovers aren't going away. I mean, it's yes, it's it's a tougher business where people aren't making money on it anymore, and so that's going to be really tough. But but I mean, if if I've got to work in somebody's basement and make a great record, then that's kind of what maybe where it's going to go. More home studios, less places like like Fantasy, where you know you can you can get a thirty piece big band in, you know, which we do a lot here. <laughs> Would you ever consider opening your own studio? You know what? I don't think I'm that crazy. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are awesome who do it. I just I don't think I I I'm not sure. I'm not going to say no on that, but. But if there was a right situation, maybe. But um, I, I just, um, man, I just see how how tough that can be. Shit, and I just, don't think I'd ever do it again. Uh, yeah, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think if I did it, I would build a place for me. Well, see, that's, yeah. That's that's why I think if that were to happen, it would be a place for me. It would be a, 
a mix room somewhere where you know didn't have a big staff or 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 staff or or, 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 or much of an overhead yeah or, or nothing like that yeah you know where it could just be me and you know so maybe that but no I would never open a commercial place but even even a smaller room to me it just seems really tough if you weren't a recording professional is there any other career you you know that's that's funny in? that that you bring that up because I actually just had that conversation with my wife and. Man, I don't really know. I really, really don't know what I would or could do. I this is all the only thing I've ever done. I mean, I've been doing this since basically I was eighteen, you yeah. know, and I'm about to be forty six. This is kind of all I know. So it's a scary thing to think about, to be honest, because where would I go? What would I do? You know, it would have to be audio related, you know, because I don't know anything else. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Well, Adam, thank you oh, so man, much. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. I really appreciate you having me and uh, you know, being able to talk about all this. Yeah. Thanks for having me over to Fantasy and the Salzans Film Center. And uh, thank I'll you. see you next time. Thanks. Adam Munoz here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks for being with me today. We got to thank all of our sponsors before we go because they, of course, help make the show possible. I'm talking about Gearsluts.com, Universal Audio, Focal Monitors, and Audio Technica. And we want to thank Cliff Truesdale, Chuck Smith, and Cole Williams. And a sincere thank you to all of you for listening each week. Spread the word. Tell all your friends. Tell all your acquaintances. Take out a giant billboard in the middle of your town. Actually, don't do that. That would be expensive. Until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to Gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.